This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. Charlie McGee is a healthy eight-year-old girl. Normal in every way, but one. Charlie has the power. She can set things on fire with just a glance. It is a power she does not want, a power she cannot control. And each night, she prays to be just like every other child. The year was 1983, and Hollywood movie producer Dino De Laurentiis and a small contingent of producers and location scouts stepped off a plane in Wilmington with a mission. Dino and the team were putting together a new film and a cover story in Southern Accents magazine on the antebellum grandeur of Orton Plantation in Brunswick County had caught their eye. The opulent property along the Cape Fear River was and still is a staple of the region's southern style. But this group also saw it as something else. The tall white pillars and sea of greenery around the rural home made it the perfect location for the shop. An off-the-grid government agency hunting down a little girl who can start fires with her mind. The film, of course, is 1984's Firestarter, an adaptation of an early Stephen King novel starring Drew Barrymore as the young pyrotechnic. What Dino and company set out to do at Orton Plantation, and ultimately the surrounding region, was not unlike the shop itself, a massive operation tucked away in the most unassuming of places. What they found in the Wilmington area was an unexpected place of opportunity, an opportunity they seized upon and grew from it something that remains a part of the region's identity still to this day. But before we get ahead of ourselves, it all starts with that trip to Orton and an unexpected request directly from Hollywood for the property's owners. The producers wanted to shoot their movie there, and then they wanted to burn it down. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm so excited to welcome you to a special episode on the landmark local production of Firestarter on the occasion of its 35th anniversary. If you're a listener of this podcast, you know that we're currently in between our regular seasons. But I didn't want to let this anniversary slip by us because it's easy to forget just how influential and important Firestarter was for this region. For all intents and purposes, it is the foundation on which an entire industry, now several generations deep, was built. It's not the most memorable Stephen King adaptation, nor is it the most beloved. I'd even say it's a rather straight-down-the-middle film. But for the local region, Firestarter lives up to its name as a history-making moment that ignited a new age in Wilmington and lit a fire of filmmaking in North Carolina like never before. This week, I'm going to take you through the production of Firestarter. From why Dino chose the region far from Hollywood for his latest project, to how it all gave birth to a transformative new industry for the region and the state. And then later in the episode, I'm going to be joined by a very special guest, Martha De Laurentiis, an associate producer on Firestarter, who stood alongside her husband, Dino, as they helped build a world of filmmaking in Wilmington from the ground up. So settle in for this special episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we fan the flames for the 35th anniversary of Firestarter. The first instance of film production in North Carolina came even before the advent of sound swept through Hollywood. Silent films, possibly hundreds of them, were made in the Old North State in the 1910s and 20s many of them in the western part of the state, near Asheville and Chimney Rock. 
most of those films were lost to time. Decayed film reels and poor preservation. But their mere existence shows an early interest in the state from the Hollywood elite. Wilmington was bit by the filmmaking bug in the 1910s, when the Carolina Film Producing Company was formed in town. But it was short-lived. As the film community of Hollywood grew from a colony of creatives to a massively influential money-making machine, the industry became more insular and heavily reliant on the sound stages in Los Angeles and the surrounding features of California. The studio system of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s made filming on huge backlots more desirable, financially and practically. Save for a few instances through the years, North Carolina was largely forgotten by Hollywood in the middle of the century, because from the bright lights of Los Angeles, the Tar Hill State might as well have been a world away. That changed in the 1980s, thanks to the outside interest of a few people, but most notably, Dino De Laurentiis. The Italian-born producer was already a mammoth in both Italian and American filmmaking when he set his sights on Wilmington. Born in 1919 on the hills of the First World War, Dino entered film school as a teenager and produced his first film barely into his 20s. World War II would prove to bookend his formative years and stunt, albeit briefly, his burgeoning career. By the 1950s, he was working with famous Italian cinema talent and began finding acclaim in Italy and abroad. In the 1960s, his production started garnering the backing of Hollywood studios, and with it came some increased star wattage. He would go on to work with Henry Fonda, Ava Gardner, Jessica Lange, Jeff Bridges, Robert Redford, Al Pacino, Jane Fonda, and Audrey Hepburn. By 1976, he had moved to the United States and began to churn out movies at a rapid pace. At least one Dino-produced film was released every year between 1946 and 1986. During that time, he was behind the scenes of such films as King Kong, Serpico, War and Peace, Three Days of the Condor, Conan the Barbarian, Halloween II, Barbarella, and Flash Gordon. At the tail end of that mind-boggling streak in the 1980s, Dino was making more films in America than ever before, a fortuitous time for his story to collide with Wilmington. On the hills of the massive success of Carrie in 1976 and The Shining in 1980, Stephen King novels were being snatched up by film producers, and Dino wanted his own. The De Laurentiis Company got out its first King adaptation in 1983 with the release of The Dead Zone, followed in short order by the acquisition of King's 1980 novel, Firestarter. The book told the story of Andy and Charlie McGee, a father and daughter on the run from a villainous government agency known as The Shop. As college students, Charlie's parents had been experimented on with hallucinatory drugs by the shop, resulting in the development of telepathic powers. As their child, Charlie had inherited a dangerous talent for being able to conjure fire with her mind. In addition to Dino's oversight and guidance, the film was produced by Frank Capra Jr., the son of the acclaimed director of It's a Wonderful Life, and Martha Schumacher, who previously worked in the finance department at the De Laurentiis Company. Later in the episode, I'll speak to Martha about how Firestarter became her first producing credit. With the rights to the novel secured, there was just one problem with the burgeoning production of Firestarter. Where were they going to shoot it? The biggest set piece of the film was a rural farm out of which the shop agents operated. Dino had a picture of the location in his mind, but he hadn't yet found it until he and Martha saw the aforementioned Southern Accents magazine. According to Dino's recollection, the pair, along with Capra Jr. and a few others, were on a plane within days to scout the location. At the time, North Carolina already had a small film office, which helped coordinate occasional productions in major cities like Charlotte and the Raleigh-Durham area. <laughs> 
But shooting a major motion picture in Wilmington in 1983 was virtually unheard of, and it wasn't going to be easy. Still, Dino sold his vision of the film wholeheartedly to Orton Plantation owner Lawrence Sprunt. But it came with a caveat. The script's climactic moment called for the shop's headquarters to burn down at the hands, or rather mind, of Charlie, to be played by eight-year-old Drew Barrymore, who had just captured audiences' hearts in E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Understandably, Sprunt wasn't going to let Hollywood producers come in and burn down a historical home built in 1725. And in reality, they weren't really asking him to. Instead, they planned to build an exact replica of the house's facade about a mile south on the property. And when it came time, they would set that ablaze with cameras rolling. Sprunt, a descendant of the famed local historian we've talked about on this show before, told the Star News in 2003 that the reproduction was uncanny. It was a magnificent proportion, he said. If you look straight at it, you couldn't tell the difference. With deals signed and hands shook, the Firestarter team began moving into the region. Today, the local film industry prides itself on its ability to provide film and television productions with locally-based crew trained in nearly every filmmaking trade. From gaffers to line producers to transportation to catering and to background extras, the region is stacked with everything a production might need. But in 1983, Wilmington had no trace of a crew base. So Dino flew in crew from Italy and Hollywood, all of whom he had worked with before, to help get the film off the ground. And more importantly, train locals in the art of filmmaking. While Orton was the linchpin that brought producers in the door, the project was going to need more than just one location. So Dino and company rented a warehouse on 23rd Street to act as a base of operations. When they weren't filming the shop scenes at Orton, cast and crew members filmed on the streets of downtown Wilmington. An odd sight for residents unaccustomed to having Hollywood cameras blocks from their homes. Firestarter officially started filming on September 16, 1983, and the first day of shooting required intermittent closures of the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge. During production, it shot between arrivals and departures at the Wilmington International Airport, turned the first Union Bank building into the exterior of the New York Times, and shot on several downtown streets, including some fiery sequences at Chestnut and 2nd Streets. In total, about 700 local background extras were used, all coordinated by the casting agency Finn Cannon & Associates. Although Hollywood and Wilmington were still getting accustomed to each other as new scene partners, local residents took pride in the project. Spectators were welcomed when they were out filming on location. The town welcomed producers and cast into their restaurants and shops, and local craftsmen and women of every skill applied to be hired on the project. Unlike today, when the press isn't often welcomed to cover productions, Firestarter embraced the media's interest. During and after production, the Wilmington Morning Star ran numerous interviews and features with everyone on the production, from director Mark Lester, to the stuntmen Glenn Randall and Peter Stater, to legendary construction manager Vic Simpson. Dino even encouraged pictures of filming in the heart of downtown. A shot of a young Drew Barrymore backlit with raging fires on 2nd Street ran with numerous articles in the paper for years to come, as did pictures of her playing around on set with on-screen father David Keith and sleeping on a bench on the riverfront between scenes. Residents told the newspaper it was the most exciting thing to ever happen to the city, an assessment I'm pretty sure previous generations would object to. But nothing sparked more of a conversation than the burning of the Orton Plantation replica. In a November 1983 Wilmington Morning Star article, 
local woodworker Peter Spire spoke about working on Firestarter, especially building the infamous Orton facade. It's meant to be one huge tinderbox, he told the newspaper at the time. The whole thing is built to go poof. The plaster columns that fronted Spire's replica were built specifically to burn safely. Trenches were dug out in the back of them so they could crumble easily, and they were broken into pieces ahead of time, so crew knew exactly when the blaze would snap them. When it finally came time to light the match on what local media called the cinematic holocaust, the one-and-done blaze went up pretty fast. But with that inferno, a statement had been made. Movie magic, large and small, could be accomplished in the Cape Fear region. The production's final shot came on Saturday, November 26th, and it called for a small helicopter to hover over the film's 23rd Street warehouse until it exploded and rained debris down on the field below. Then, it was a wrap. 66 days after it started, the fire was out. The film had spent $5 million in town, around a third of its $15 million budget, and it had also shot a few scenes in the western part of the state. The finished film starred Barrymore, Keith, Heather Locklear, Martin Sheen, and George C. Scott. When it was released on May 11, 1984, Firestarter was the fifth King adaptation released within a nine-month period, following closely on the hills of Cujo, The Dead Zone, Christine, and Children of the Corn. Critics weren't kind to it. Roger Ebert gave it two stars, saying the most astonishing thing in the movie is how boring it is. King himself called the film flavorless a few years after it was released. And in one particularly scathing review from the Washington Post, reviewer Gary Arnold eviscerated the film, saying, quote, Even before it begins laying waste to the reputations of cast members, Firestarter is promptly exposed as a derivative embarrassment of a conception. End quote. Now, anyone who's seen Firestarter will likely agree that that's probably a bit dramatic. Sure, it wasn't going to win any Academy Awards or box office crowns. In fact, it only made $17 million at the box office, a haul that currently ranks it 27th on Box Office Mojo's list of Stephen King adaptations. But really, the reviews in the box office didn't matter. The future had already been set in motion by the time the movie hit the big screen. For Wilmington, Firestarter's real value lied in the symbiotic relationship formed between the producing team and the local community. With lives and work elsewhere, Dino, Martha, and Capra Jr. could have hopped a plane and put Wilmington and Firestarter's tepid reception in their past. But they saw potential in the Cape Fear region, and so they took a chance on it. Three days before filming wrapped on Firestarter, Dino and then North Carolina Governor Jim Hunt announced the producer was going to buy the production warehouse on 23rd Street and along with the acquisition of adjoining properties, would immediately begin building a permanent film studio. The day after that announcement, the director of the South Carolina Film Office called up Dino and presented him with a counteroffer, bring his new studio to Charleston. For three weeks, the Carolinas were locked in a battle over the future of film as Dino weighed his options. But on December 16, 1983, he put his chips on Wilmington. The Morning Star announced the victory with the headline, City Wins Duel for Film Studio. The Morning Star announced the victory with the headline, City Wins Duel for Film Studio. The biography Dino, the Life and Films of Dino De Laurentiis puts into perspective why that decision was so monumental. Quote, once again, Dino was taking a big risk. He was directly competing with Hollywood, and he was doing so from the most unlikely state in the Union. End quote. 
The resulting studio, dubbed De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, or DEG, was opened within the year. And in its first year, Dino vowed to make at least three movies locally, collectively budgeted at around $36 million. Almost immediately, more Stephen King properties were put into development. Barrymore was brought back in for 1985's Cat's Eye, the same year they released Silver Bullet. King himself would even come to Wilmington for his first and only directorial effort on 1986's Maximum Overdrive. Martha, who would marry Dino in 1990, was also installed as the president of the newly formed North Carolina Film Council in 1984. The studio Dino built has since changed hands a few times and is now EUE Screen Gym Studios, the first president of which was Frank Capra Jr. He remained in the role until his death in 2007. The local crew trained by Dino's finest during Firestarter have since gone on to create their own generations of crew members, many of which stretch through their own families. Although the industry has gone through its hardships, the local film community has endured, even when the state hasn't made it easy. Firestarter may fade into the background of flashier projects that have followed it, like Iron Man 3, One Tree Hill, The Conjuring, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Sleepy Hollow. But in many ways, it was Firestarter that paved the way for all of them to call Wilmington home. And the embers of the film's days in the Cape Fear region still simmer today. Joining me now is a very special guest to continue our conversation about Firestarter. It's Martha De Laurentiis, and Martha was an associate producer on Firestarter, and then she was a producer on several more productions that were done here in Wilmington after Firestarter, and is currently the president of the De Laurentiis Company, which has been behind several projects in recent years and all the way back to Firestarter and made one of my favorite TV shows, Hannibal. Thank you so much for being here, Martha. Thank you, and hello, Wilmington. So I've given our listeners a background on the production of Firestarter, which, uh, as I've mentioned and, and kind of reiterated several times, it was such an influential project for this area. But I was curious how you got involved with the film. I had been working in the De Laurentiis Company since 1980, and we're talking Firestarter 1983. And at a time, it was we had just finished Amityville 3D in the spring of 83, and several of us within the company were thinking about breaking apart from the company and producing our own movie. We were starting to go in that direction when I put in my resignation to Dino. And he said, immediately says, oh, no, 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 Marta. And I'm doing it with his Italian accent. <laughs> he said, no, I, I, oh, no, you no go, you no go. He said, you no go, you, you broken your nose, he said. <laughs> And in which to, to insinuate that if I went independently on a shitty little movie, you know, I, I would obviously, you know, you, you would fail. He didn't want me to go out and fail. He mm -hmm. said, you want to be producer? I make you producer. Fire starter. So, you know, in the, as, as an upstart producer, you start as being an associate producer. Yeah. You're not made producer right away. So, which was fine. I mean, I was very excited. I, I was actually, um, from the company side, already budgeting um, Firestarter in several locations. We were looking at shooting in San Antonio. We were looking at doing it not so much on the East Coast, where it was set, but um, Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. And, uh, and, and the budget was, was a little more expensive than what um, the company was, was willing to, to underwrite. So that, that basically brought me into the throes of working with Frank Capra Jr., who was a fantastic man, gentleman, and producer, and working together, well, then where are we going to shoot this, along with Dino making the decisions. We had just, well, we were still making films in Mexico, and we're in business with, with a man called Gerald Green, and he was packaging things. So in the package, and very attractive to go to San Antonio, we would have the studios in Mexico, which we had been shooting Dune and Conan and the Amityville Horror Story. And then we would shoot in San Antonio, which didn't look anything like Virginia or anything <laughs> looking like the shop. So along with that, hiring a uh, production designer, Ron Foreman, the challenge was 
how do then we make San Antonio look like, or Virginia, or outside of going to Virginia, Washington, D.C., where do we shoot? And uh, he had done uh, kind of a recce. I think he had gotten on a plane, went back to Charlotte, and, and looked around in that part of the southeast, Charlotte, uh, going for different areas around there. Obviously, um, South Carolina was also an option. So he brought back photos. And with that, he brought back a magazine, which was Southern Accents. And on the cover of that magazine was a beautiful shot of Horton Plantation with the azaleas in full bloom and the columns freshly painted. So, you know, Ron showed Dino that picture, you know, the magazine with some shots inside of, of what the varied southeast, what it looked like in the southeast, because he had not been there. And he looked at the, the front, he said, that's it. That is the shop. And that shop being what Langley was, or the secret uh, Langley um, headquarters of uh, the, the, the ones doing the evil within, mm-hmm. within, the, uh, within the government. And so, you know, so we all kind of uh, made appropriate phone calls, lined things up so that we could go down to, via Charlotte, to Wilmington, on to Wilmington, and to see the area and to meet those in charge of Orton Plantation. So when we went, and we went um, we went commercial, which was at that time Piedmont Airlines, and then we, we went hopping from um, Charlotte then over to Wilmington, and Dino really didn't like the plane service so much. Um, he, was, he was used to going Concord to London from New York. He was used <laughs> to going cross-country on Regent Air, or going, you know, at, at least on a, on a bigger freight. But uh, so he said, that's one thing we must fix. We shoot here, we must fix the airlines, as if he could fix the airlines. But anyway, so right off the plane, we were met immediately by the, the wonderful Southern gentleman, Kenneth Sprunt Sr., and he was, of course, the family, Sprunt family, had Ord Plantation. Mm-hmm. And uh, everything had been arranged that we would meet Thomas Sprunt and then be taken to Ord Plantation to see the location. And, um, you know, again, you know, Kenneth being our first Southern gentleman that we had met was, was, uh, was just wonderful and willing. And that's what we really found about what Wilmington, the welcome mat was open. It was always, the, the arms were open, the welcome mat was open. As with what we found coming to Wilmington, it was immediately arms open, red carpet out. Please, we're we're willing to hear what what you're bringing, and we want you here. And that, from that moment, as always, it stayed the green light for us. It was, which was from looking at the location and the, the conversation just with Kenneth Brunt and telling him what we wanted to shoot there, what was the intention, what was going to happen there. And then at the end, Dino goes, and then... We blow it up. <laughs> Silence. Kenny Sprunt's smile just went away, and he, he thought he didn't hear Dino. What, what do you mean you, you, you blow it up? He said, no, no, no. As in the book, you know, the fire starter is this young girl who will shoot a ball of fire into the headquarters of the shop and burn all the bad guys up, and boom. <laughs> and the second response was still silent. And he's, you know, because it, you know, Kenneth wasn't from... The, the world of, of filmmaking and fascination and anything can be done, you know, with visual effects. And at that time, it, was, it wasn't um, computer-generated. It was all blue screen, on film, matte painting, and, and, you know, optical work. So Dino started to explain, no, 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 this is what we'll do. We won't actually burn the Orton Plantation. But we, um, we would also start have fire flames outside of the windows. We would build these boxes outside of every window passage of Orton Plantation, the, the facade, mm-hmm. and, and throw fire up, that it would be a controllable fire. Well, that didn't fly. So, so Dino says, okay, what we do, what we do? Can we walk around? And so there's plenty of beautiful acreage around the Orton Plantation. So we decided to build the facade, the entire facade of Orton, Orton Plantation, because it would be shot at night, and the fire, you could see so much better at night. The ball of fire would then be on a, on a long tightrope of sorts, propelled then from Charlie, the character of Charlie, who is Drew Barrymore. Mm-hmm. And it would propel into then the facade, and we would have all these gas um, uh, apparatuses hooked up in each, in each window box as well. And so that, that is then how, ultimately, 
we talked Kenneth into because it'd be very safe. We wouldn't be destroying anything with the actual physical plant of the plantation. But we would build the facade and then blow up and control the burns so that we had fire trucks there so that nothing would ultimately burn and destroy anything. But, you know, everything from, you know, understanding what was going to be done, uh, still, you know, the positive. Yes, okay, let's do it. Well, this, we, this whole town didn't know any of that, though, because we didn't have the film here. So you bringing the, the art of filmmaking to them was probably a lot to digest. Well, I'm sure it was fascinating, too, because all these people coming to town, everybody is renting a car from us. Everybody is eating in our restaurants. Where are all these people coming from? And all this money being spent, they were very happy. Yeah. You know, when you we shot on the streets, we paid location fees, or if you were, you know, shooting along Main Street, you know, everyone was welcoming us, even though we would block traffic. Uh, we tried to, you know, work with everyone that the traffic wouldn't be blocked to, you know, at, at you know, too long spaces. But, uh, you know, then at least if people were inconvenienced, there was a way to negotiate um, or a fee or a timing-wise or something so that you always keep everyone happy. You don't want to come in, take over for a neighborhood, and then leave. I mean, you're, you know, you're serving no one any good, and that should not be what our business is. And, and we just found that... Uh, working out of Wilmington, we we always had that cooperation. You know, there were there were scuffles, there were there were missteps, uh, but you know, you work it out, and, and and things always did get worked out. Did you did you have a first impression of Wilmington when you guys got here and you landed and and you knew you were headed out to Orton Plantation? But was there anything that kind of you remember of of you know kind of looking out and and seeing it for the first time? Oh yes, because we stayed down at the Hilton right on the the Cape Fear. Yeah. And and with that, we we saw you know a southeastern town that that we didn't know. You know, Dino's from Italy. You know, he lived in New York, then in L.A. What did he know about the different pockets of of America? The different you know state territorial wise. What does the what does the uh, landscape look like? So we explored. We we ate Thomas Wright uh, of the Wright family, Wright Chemicals. He had a restaurant called the Pilot House. Our yeah. first meal was at the pilot house. But we had a great meal, great muffins, and it became our favorite restaurant. So you go to a community, you enjoy the people you're, you're, you're meeting. In fact, Dino had a hard time with the southern accent, he being Italian, not really understanding the southern accent. But he was charmed, and he was charmed by the openness and the facility that he could, you know, get things, things could move ahead. He wasn't roadblocked. There was no time when he was roadblocked, said, no, you can't do that. So it, you know, it was just win-win. Was it crazy to, for, for the company and, and Dino and, and Frank and everyone to want to, to make this movie in a town that didn't have that infrastructure beforehand? Or was there kind of this challenge, this excitement to kind of build it up from the ground for this production? Well, it was a combination of a couple of things. They had done Brainstorm um, up in Raleigh, I believe, in that area. So there was already somewhat of a cognizance from the state point of view of the value of having a film come to the state or come to town. And um, with us with us coming to, to town and, and having a good experience with Firestarter, we, we had a good experience in, in, in many ways. One of the bigger ways was the fact that we could bring personnel from Los Angeles. We could bring personnel from Italy, from, from London, from uh, New York. Cast came down from New York, and everyone could work together without having union territorial issues. Mm-hmm. North Carolina being the right-to-work state that it is, and I believe still is, uh, would, would, would give you that right-to-work state of, of, of working. It's not anonymously, but you don't recognize everyone in one union or, or yeah. you know, or keep people out because they are not part of the union, which helped so much to build up a local crew. They didn't have to join a union to be an apprentice or to be the fifth man on the rung or to be a driver. And and that for for us was terrific because our director of photography and his crew we brought over from Italy. So we were able to control a budget and in fact um, you know make it very feasible to self finance films in that way. By, by having a lower budget, we could take bigger risks, make more things, because it didn't cost as much. So we did make, we, we decided to stay. We decided to take this Gregory Pool warehouse on 23rd Street that was abandoned, and we negotiated a long lease. Eventually we bought it, 
but that would be our first beginnings of a stage. Yeah. We built our sets from Firestarter in a warehouse. So we eventually, you know, build many stages as, as are there today. I know they've added stages on during mm-hmm. the decades that it's been there. But boy, oh boy, how long have we been there? We, we officially opened North Carolina Film Studios in 1984. Mm-hmm. So that would be 35 how many years? years? 35, 35 year anniversary years. of North Carolina Film Studios, which are now Screen Gems. Wait, so the the crew that he brought in from from all over, those were the ones that that helped kind of train the local residents who then became our local film base is I mean film crew that's base. Right. That's 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 how it kind of worked, right? That, that and that is how the film industry does continue to work. Once you, you know, start in the business, you start at the bottom and you and you earn your way up. And that was a way that really a fantastic crew base was built in Wilmington. This was in that first decade when uh, Stephen King adaptations were, were very popular. They were, they, there were some really iconic movies made, and, and this was one of them. What was it like to, to have that kind of be the basis for this project? Because I know that you ended up working with Stephen King several times after that, even here in Wilmington. Yeah, no. He, in fact, Stephen came down when we were shooting Firestarter. We were renting a house on Wrightsville Beach. And we had his his lawyer, and he come down, and, and we put them up, and just so that they could see what we were doing in Wilmington. He got very excited because we had done Dead Zone, we had done Dead Zone up in Toronto, Canada, and as he was living in Maine, he was able to visit up in Canada. So we became friends, and then with that, Stephen, you know, what what else do you have? And he he gave me a, a book called Night Shift, and in it are short stories that he had had published in the seventies. And I collected five short stories out of that, which then would become our next movie that we did called Cat's Eye. And Stephen wrote the screenplay for that. Another one that he had given to me was Cycle of the Werewolf. It was a, uh, a novella, and it was, we too, you know, that was the next one we shot after, after Cat's Eye. And that was about the, the local priest turning into a rabbi. So the cycle of the moment, every time there'd be a full moon, something would happen that he transfixed into a werewolf, and then wreaked havoc on the little town of Wilmington. And then, uh, and then, of course, then Stephen was ready to direct. You know, he thought, look, I'm writing screenplays. A lot of my books are being optioned. A lot of my books are being, you know, made into films. You know, why don't I take my turn at directing? So he wrote a combination of several of the, um, several of the, the short stories in Night Shift. And the main one was called Trucks, and where trucks take over this is before we even had um, artificial intelligence as being what we know now as the AI, the singularity, and we are we are slaves of our digital <laughs> and, and, and devices. But it, uh, he got very excited. He wrote the screenplay and said, "I'd like to direct." And Dina says, "Why not? You certainly you certainly know storytelling. You certain, certainly know visually and can study. And we'll put you a, put around you a, a very good crew." which we did, and, and he directed. And I think you know, he's made a cult classic. Maybe oh, yeah. it wasn't for its time that the tone of it and being you know, really Stephen King's sense of humor, which is unique, wasn't appreciated as much as it should have been. But um, for me, it was a success. Oh, people love that movie now. So it, it, and, yeah. and I love that, that now, you know, people are back. I grew up on that. I have, I have you know, uh, a lot of boys, actually. They're, 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 they're men now. But they said, I, that was my movie at 12 that I... That I, you know, broke the law to see, a, you know, an R-rated movie at age yeah. twelve. So it's yeah, and around the world, by the way, it was a big success in England. So uh, which you don't know, you just kind of know how it was received in America the first weekend or second weekend, and and if you know it didn't take off, you were like, well, sorry, yank it away. Well, and that that relationship that you guys built with Stephen King reverberated even after you know Dino and yourself had had moved on from the area because we had Under the Dome here. It's just kind of this this thing where we have a lot of Stephen King uh, adaptations that are really rooted in this film community, and it's because of Firestarter. It's because of of the uh, of all of you guys kind of making this movie here and showing him and and Hollywood in in, in a much broader sense uh, the the feasibility of what can be done here. Well, that's right, and there was a real shift from in the '60s. Up to the 60s, everything was shot in Hollywood on sound stages so that the studios could control um, artist schedules. They could, they could actually control because it was shot within a stage. You don't depend on weather. You know the size of stage you have. You know what you're willing to spend on constructing that. When well, the 70s, that kind of broke out where all of a sudden in New York, you had Scorsese, you had Bob Fosse, you had, you had um, 
directors that were making films on the streets that then became visually exciting and storytelling exciting, that changed the paradigm of shift, of Hollywood being willing to travel to make something on location, New York being the location, which then became a mega center for filmmaking. And that's when I started to work in the film industry was on seven, in 76, where it was so busy in the 70s of Hollywood movies coming to shoot, but yet then they would go back to Los Angeles, back to Hollywood to finish the post-production. So it was still kind of a bifurcated industry. Much of the, the studio bases were based out of L.A., even though they had offices in New York, even though you did have post-production services in New York. Ultimately, everything went back to Hollywood. But in the 80s, when it came to independent film financing, you needed to go where you could afford to shoot, where you got the best bang for buck on the screen. And that's where Dino was one of the key independent film producers. And he went wherever it took to get it made that looked visually exciting, that he could also afford. And that's where traveling to North Carolina as the Hollywood East, we made so many films and television series because people could come. They could not have to travel so many, bring so many crew members in, and they could find them locally there. And it just, uh, it, it became an industry. And it's an industry that uh, I was personally hired to cover. That's what, that's what I started covering at the, at the newspaper here in Wilmington, uh, just kind of on the success of, of you know, movies like Iron Man and, and uh, The Conjuring and things that really were a next level for this industry uh, that had been here, you know, at that time by, you know, 25 years. And now we're, we're up to uh, 35 years with, uh, with Firestarter. So it's, it has legs. It, it, it definitely, those roots that were put down with Firestarter definitely uh, were strong. Because we showed it could be done. Yeah. You know, a lot of people really are provincial when you come down to it. They don't want to leave their family. They don't want to leave their backyard. You know, if, if you could make it in Los Angeles, you know, for, for a price, they would stay here. But it became very expensive out here in Los Angeles with the unions and stage prices that uh, because of competition and because of really a, a monopoly of this is the way you do it. So when the breakouts started to happen, when the breakouts proved that you could travel here, you could make your film there, and uh, you get the same quality. You know, you get a different look as well. You can yeah. actually do the actual look of what's written in the screenplay. Now, when you look back on this movie 35 years later, uh, I've heard stories of how much of a spectacle blowing up that facade of Orton Plantation was. Uh, people still talk about it. Uh, but is there anything else that sticks out to you or stands out to you about this movie, in particular this production, that you just look back fondly on or, or like, you know, man, we could have done something different or... What is it about Firestarter that, you know, you reminisce on now, 35 years later? Well, I think, I think obviously, it's, it's very dear to me because it was my first movie that I was in the protestorial department. Yeah. And there's a lot more responsibility with that because ultimately, what are your choices and how are you going to move ahead so that you still get what you want? Or if you need to come back, what's it going to cost to come back and reshoot? Then you're part of that. You're part of a creative process rather than just a more business administration process. Firestarter is known by you know people who see it casually or even people who know it well uh, because of its central performance by a very young Drew Barrymore. What was it like to have uh, you know her being a, a child and and someone who is a child actor from a a very reputable, well known family? Um, be the center of this movie in this new place. I mean, does, was, it, was it a good kind of fit for, for everyone? It was a wonderful fit because Drew, besides being adorable, was independent enough in thought and talent that what needed to be done, she would do. And not that we asked crazy things of her, but it's she's a child. She's eight years old. She had to go to school. She had to know her lines. She had to be professional. And she was. Her mother was obviously on set as the guardian. And when, you know, sometimes when we needed a little more time with her on the schedule, being a right to work, we had more lenient hours in the child labor laws than would have been in Hollywood. With a child actor of that age, you have four hours, you know, in front of the camera, four hours in school, and then she's done. She goes away. Yeah. We were able to, I don't know what the laws were at the time, but within the law, have to, you know, she got her schooling. She, she had a, a normal day, but it wasn't cut off at eight hours. You asked permission of the parents, you know, because you have to give them playtime and sleep time. We were able to, to uh, use 
her more in the schedule, which she was, of course, she's going to you know, say, yes, I'll do it. She doesn't want to say no. But it wasn't we were taking advantage of that yet. And we were always very careful that she had the proper, everything around her was, was absolute tip-top proper. But she was a, a real trooper. And well, as I said, just so professional. Well, and she's also playing such a, uh, a fantastical role that requires, you know, a real emotional core, I think, when you look back on that movie. Uh, it's a lot of the expression of her face and then cut to fire and, and things like that. So, you know, she's obviously just a, a great talent, obviously, still working today. But it's just kind of interesting to look back on that and see how much she anchors that movie in, uh, this, that movie being so important to this area. You know, she came back for Cat's Eye as well, so it yes. was clearly a good fit. Yes, yes. She was, we, we, we loved her, and we loved taking care of her. It was, it was just wonderful. Now, Firestarter, it wasn't a huge critical favorite when it came out, but it has become such a staple for fans, particularly fans of Stephen King, over the last 35 years. Why do you think people keep coming back to this movie? What is it about it that do you think you guys kind of tapped into? Well, there's an in, in, injustice of inciting this, what, what, she, what she had, you know, her parents given the drip, you know, not, not knowing what they were given by the evil government. You know, we always love these stories of the evil government. And then, you know, the child, which represents us all, taking it in her hands and having to fight back. And she does. So, and, and that's, that's pretty much where, you know, the victor is, is the young child of, of, you know, what was done wrong. They killed her parents. They did this to her parents. And they've done this to her. And I will do this to you. She gets what she wants and gets it back. But she's it's, it's a girl that she, you know, she's been on, on the run her whole life. You know, and that's basically that, that character having been forced to run. If not, they would, they would capture her, take advantage of her, try to figure out why she's that way, and destroy her. Are you proud of the industry and the community that has been built from those Firestarter days? I mean, do you think Dino would be proud of what it is today? We were always proud of, of, of what it became from the start because we, we had a home there up until just a few years ago I sold it, but we wanted to live there. We vacationed there. We loved being there. And the fact that it continues to to be in, in the area, that the studios still run and are strong, and that um, you know different generations now coming up and being, being taught the, the, the different departments and the, the mechanics of, of the industry. It's, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. It's not what you go into an area to thinking that you're building futures for people. It is part of what you're doing. You know, you are, you're contributing as well as the benefit of the community. You know, there, there, there are many things that, that happen with good experiences of film, films, coming film troops from crews coming to, to communities. And so I, I also hope that communities, wherever they are approached, um, are, are welcoming and, and that those who go, you know, treat the, the um, treat with respect whose territory they've invaded. But it's it's uh, no, it's it's just wonderful that. And then I still have so many friends that are still. And with Facebook, you're able to still follow, you know, what people are doing and their anniversaries or their, their children and their babies and all of that. So it's, we've been able to stay in touch. Does it feel like 35 years have passed since since coming here to do Firestarter? It doesn't feel like 35 years. But when you think of it, uh, you know, Dino has, he passed, it'll be nine years this year. So if you take that, that doesn't seem like that long ago. So we, we you know, our, our our lives have kind of accelerated over the years because you're, you're constantly moving, you're constantly creating. What can we, you know, what are we going to do next? And that momentum just happens, just thrusting so fast that you, you know, 35 years, 35 years mean, Wow. we are 35 years after Firestarter and I know that you are involved with you know a brewing remake or reimagining of the story with Bloomhouse which is the producer behind Get Out Uh, what can you say about it is that something that you were eager to kind of jump back into this story after this time or or uh, is it is there a kind of a a pitch that makes it different we had about uh, nine years ago had the idea of what does where is Charlie next you know what age is she she's still the girl on the run and we developed a screenplay, actually, for that she would be 22 years old. Her whole life has been outsmarting uh, being chased. So mm-hmm. we start with that. And um, funny enough, it was we, we finished it, and we thought, who could be Charlie? So 
but the perfect actress would be Jennifer Lawrence. Mm-hmm. She had just done, I think, one or two movies and wasn't the star she is now. But it was difficult having a movie based on a female lead. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get traction with Universal. So we put it aside. And then, um, actually, uh, there was something that Stephen King was developing for the network television that was based on the shop. So he asked Universal to not have Firestarter be a movie that um, that perhaps would be better as a TV series u- utilizing the shop. This would be something different. But then Jason Bloom uh, had met Stephen on another project, or it was uh, it was a, a, one of the producers, one of the writers, and they said their favorite book was always Firestarter. So through that, he says, great. So it came back to Universal, which came to me, that Blumhouse would like to do it. So, okay, great, let's do it together. So now it's uh now it's out there. You know, hopefully it'll um happen soon. Would the, would you ever consider filming it in Wilmington? Kind of re- try to recapture the magic. Oh, why not? If it makes economical sense, sure. Well, and yeah, I mean, we always say here that you can kind of shoot for anywhere in Wilmington, and yeah. uh, and so if it is something where she's older and kind of outrunning someone, you could you could definitely use all the aspects of Wilmington. Give you know some scenic. Uh, some scenic scenes for uh, I think Grown there's Charlie. no one better than me that knows Wilmington. The amount of things that we shot and scouted, you bet. <laughs> well, there you go. Martha, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to reminisce about Firestarter. It is absolutely an important production for this region. And uh, like you said, you, you know it better than anyone because this is uh, a really special production for you. Very much so. And, and Dino's heart, as was mine, is mine, is, was always there. So it, it, in many ways... Wilmington's very special as his fire starter. That's it for this special episode of the podcast celebrating the 35th anniversary of Firestarter. Thank you so much for joining me. And another big thank you to Martha for being our guest. Season three of Cape Fear on Earth is just a few short weeks away. And while you wait on the new season, be sure to share your thoughts on the show on Twitter with the hashtag CFUnearth. Or you can email me your thoughts directly at capefearunearth at gmail.com. Also, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content every week. And this week, I'm going to be sharing a great gallery of photos from the production of Firestarter in 1983. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. And this episode was recorded at WHQR Studios in downtown Wilmington. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you stream the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers just like you. Support local journalism and this show by subscribing today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. Until we meet again for the start of Season 3, I want to encourage everyone to get out and explore the Cape Fear region on their own. What you learn might just surprise you. Yeah.